Well, we are talking about uh, the, the, the vision that, that of God to, to, to be a church with a long, rich history and yet uh, anchored to his purposes for this generation and, and talking about unleashing a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. And as we pursue that vision, certain values in, in kind of inform our pursuit of that. And we've been talking about that over the past uh, few weeks. And, and the, the value that we really want to focus on on this morning is uh, the value that we call Christ-centered families, Christ-centered families. In the year 2000, uh, Democratic Senator Patrick Moynihan was coming to the the close of a 40-year political career, and he was being interviewed and asked about, you know, what what changes he's seen, what's different in in 40 years, and and his his observation was most interesting. He had a a sociological background, and so that certainly informed his observation. But, But here were his words after 40 years. The biggest change that I've seen is the family structure has come apart all over the North Atlantic world. This change has occurred in a historical instant, Moynihan said, something that was not even imaginable 40 years ago. That was in the year 2000. Since that time, the the, the structure and challenges uh, to to family has not slackened. It perhaps has increased and picked up even all the more as there is this continual evolution and we might argue a de-evolution of the family structure across uh, the, the North Atlantic, certainly not just limited to this country. And, and that, that, that is a challenge because uh, what folks understand, regardless of their politics, regardless of their, uh, their background, and sometimes even regardless of their faith perspective, is that the, the families are very, very important. The family is, is a basic building block for all human society. It's been that way from the very beginning. Uh, families certainly come in all shapes and sizes. Families go through all sorts of different seasons as a part of their journey together. Some families work very, very well. Some not so well. But regardless of the diversity, there is something central about the family. Families matter. They matter to individuals they matter to nations, they matter to societies, they matter to our world as a whole. Well, one of the things that we know for sure is that families matter to God because families were God's idea. I mean, from the very beginning, the family was God's idea. You see that in the very first chapters of the first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, let me just read a couple of those verses. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Then he goes on to describe the, the creation of Eve. Then verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not 
ashamed. There was something about this relationship at this point, untainted by sin, that was the, the bedrock of what God was going to do in the world. He gave further instructions in Genesis 1 in a kind of a parallel creation account, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And that focus on family just continues throughout the scripture. You come to uh, the the, uh, later prophets, uh, Malachi puts it this way, did he not make them one, speaking of a husband and wife, with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God places a priority on the family. When we talk about uh, just some of our core beliefs, our our statement of faith uh, has something about uh, the centrality of the family. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. It is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. A longer and perhaps fuller statement is uh, the Family Life Family Manifesto. We believe God is the originator of the family. It was established by God in his inaugural act of the marriage between a man and a woman. The Bible further defines the family through God's instructions for married couples to have children, whether by birth or by adoption. We believe the purpose of the family is to glorify and honor God by forming the spiritual, emotional, physical, and economic foundation for individuals, the church, and any society. I kind of simplify that. For me, family is God's idea, and it was for the glory of God and the good of people. The family was always intended, like all of God's creation, to to bring glory and honor to God. But when the family works as God designed it to, when it is, in our terminology, a Christ-centered family, it becomes a place of blessing. It becomes something that is very good and positive for people, not just the people who live under the same roof, but all people throughout that community, throughout society, even throughout the world. When the family is functioning, is God design. It brings honor and glory to God, but it also brings tremendous good, tremendous blessing to people. And we glorify God when we appropriately respond to Him, and we accurately reflect His character, His purposes, and His ways. And the first place that we do that, the front lines of doing that, is in our very own home. That's why we put an emphasis on that around here. That's why we value that around here. That's why when we're in a disciple life cycle and we're going on right now, uh, we have a marriage class that's always a part of that. We've got a parenting class going on with that right now. Oh, that's just part of that. That's why we have, have lifted up this whole value of a marriage ministry. And so we want to come alongside and help good marriages get better. We want marriages that maybe are struggling to find support and help and structure 
structure and, and resources along the way. Marriages in crisis, we want to rally around those because we know that the family matters. We know it honors God and it blesses people when it works the way that God designed. And so as we pursue our vision, we're going to pursue that with, with a passion for families, with a passion for Christ-centered families. If we're going to unleash a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers, it's not just what happens at church on a Sunday. It's what happens every day of the week in the context of families. And when those families are Christ-centered, they are going to launch out Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers. And so in order for that to happen, there's some things that need to be a part of our families. And what I, what I understand is that across our three services, uh, families are at kind of all different shapes and sizes. They're singles. There's folks that are uh, newly married, no kids. There's folks that have kids everywhere. There are empty nesters. There are folks that are, are widowed. Uh, there are, are folks that, through perhaps no desire of their own, find themselves uh, in a divorce situation and single parenting and, and all, all sorts of, uh, of varieties. But wherever God finds you today, uh, the calling is to live out as a Christ-centered family. Whatever uh, season you're in, whatever shape your family is in right now. And so as we think about that wide variety, there are some things that I think is a part of, uh, of a family. And we could make a long, long list, and we've done series on family before, so, so we certainly won't cover it all this morning. But for the sake of kind of the moments that we have, I just want to focus on four things. Four things that I think scripturally a family is. And interestingly enough, we were just singing about one of those. A family is first and foremost a shelter from storms. It is designed to be a shelter from the inevitable storms of life. Proverbs says, in the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. When those who are leading a home are walking in the fear of the Lord, there is a confidence, there is a security there, and that, that can bring a, a sense of, of refuge, of safety, of shelter in the midst of storms. And we talk about storms, they come in lots of different shapes and sizes, don't they? Lots of types of storms, and let me just throw out uh, just a few just to, just to maybe get you thinking. Uh, there's the storms of change. And sometimes change is normal, it's expected, it's progressive, and so there this change, you change from infancy to childhood to middle school to high school to college and, and you're entering into young adulthood, and there's, there's just developmental changes, and sometimes those changes can be tricky, right? And so we just kind of need a place where as we navigate the, the normal changes of life that we have a shelter in the midst of storm. Sometimes those changes are sudden. They're unexpected. They're unannounced. And so the, the, this, this storm comes in. Maybe it's a financial storm, a job loss. Maybe it's a, a health-related uh, crisis and, and, and somebody's dealing with something that none of us would ever thought would have ever hit our family along the way. Maybe it's a, a relocation. Your job takes you to a new place, a new community. The whole family has to relocate and wasn't really planning on it or expecting it, but it's a lot of change all of a sudden, and that's kind of what brought many of you uh, to this community along the way. Change, and on and on on the list goes. But in the midst of change, we need a place of security. We need a place of refuge. We need a place that's a shelter. But there are also like storms of failure, right? Because we all fail. 
That's part of growing up. That's part of learning. That's part of developing. We, we fail to achieve a goal. We, we, we fail uh, to, to do this. We fail to live up to our best. We, uh, we fail in, in the pursuit of a hope or dream or, or we feel like a failure because we didn't make this team or whatever it would be. We experience failure. It is an inevitable part of life. In the midst of failure, home can be a, a shelter, a shelter in the midst of that storm. But not only failure, but let me just throw out one more. How about rejection? Anybody ever experienced the storm of rejection? <laughs> Some of us are having flashbacks to our school days right now, right? Yes. Oh, rejection. And we all experience that along the way. And when we experience rejection, what we desperately need is a safe place. What we desperately need is that place of refuge, that shelter from the storm, a place where I know I'm loved, I'm valued. I'm accepted. It doesn't mean that everything I do is approved of, and that's addressed, uh, but, but it is a place where I will not be rejected. And, and in that, there is tremendous security, tremendous shelter from the storms of life. The Scripture puts it this way, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, Two will withstand him. A threefold, threefold, excuse me, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, that, that's a passage that speaks to friendship, it speaks to community, uh, but, but it also speaks to the family, that when there is this, this unity, when there is this togetherness, it forms a shelter in the midst of storms. Lee Eckeville, who's a writer and author, talks about growing up in a little community of, of Britain, uh, South Dakota. And you say, well, I've never heard of that. Well, there's probably good reason. I think even today there's only about 1,200 people that live there. The cattle far outnumber the human beings in, in that uh, neck of the, uh, the country. Uh, but, but he talked about one of the unique things about growing up there was storms would blow in. I mean, they, they would come whipping across those plains, and they would come uh, quickly. They would come often unannounced, and, and, and there was just not time to get prepared for them. And we're talking about blizzard-type things where you just couldn't even move. And, and so this was even in the days before cell phones and, and all those things. And so the school system... Uh, kind of put together a rather unique way of handling these crises. Because what would happen, you know, you, you have families that are scattered out perhaps all over the county. I mean, there's not even 1,200 people uh, all across this area. And they, they, they bust them into the school. And then this storm blows up and there, there's no way that they're going to be able to get those kids on school buses and get them to their home in time. And so the system that they developed, they developed what they called storm homes. Storm homes was the safe place to go. And so if you as a parent, you were out here and this blizzard comes in, what you knew is that your child was going to be taken to some home right there in the town, some home where they were going to be safe. They were going to be warm. They were going to be well-fed. That's how they navigated these sudden, unexpected storms. They had storm homes set up. And Lee said he went back years later for a, a reunion, and a, and a guy came up to him and began talking. And he said, I remember your house was my storm home. Your house was my storm home. And I remember how your mom and dad took care of us. Your mom and dad welcomed us in and, and provided food and shelter and a place to sleep and, and safety in the midst of that storm. That's one of the purposes that I think God has for a family, 
for a home in the midst of the world in which we live. We're to be a storm home, a shelter from the inevitable storms of life in a sin-scarred world. The question is, well, how, how do I do that? Uh, it's one thing to have a house, but how do I turn that house, how do I turn a home into a shelter? And again, we could probably go on and on about this, but I'll just give you four just as a beginning point, and they all start with H because preachers do that sort of thing, right? Uh, but the first one is here is here. If I'm really going to be a shelter, it needs to be a place where I can be heard, where it is a safe place, where someone will tune in and actually listen to me. And this is an incredibly challenging thing in our culture, isn't it? I mean, we're bombarded with messages. We feel like we're on all the time. And I'm going to reference in a few minutes a New York Times article that I think even speaks to this. But, but to hear, to truly be heard, that I am really listened to, that this is a safe place to express myself. When I feel that safety, that I will be heard, not necessarily always agreed with, but I will be heard, it is a safe place to be heard, that becomes a shelter. That becomes a shelter in the midst of the storms. And then Uh, There's incredible value in a hug. There's incredible value in a hug. Touch is such a powerful communicator uh, in our lives. Uh, Dr. Dasher Keltner, who's a professor of psychology and a scientific advisor for the Pixar film Inside Out. Many of you parents took your kids to see Inside Out, or maybe you just saw it yourself or whatever it is. He was one of the scientific advisors to that. Uh, one, One of his conclusions is that human touch is the foundation of human relationships. He explains skin-to-skin, parent-to-child touch is the social language of our social life. The foundation of all human relationship is touch. There are four years of touch exchanged between mother and baby. In the social realm, our social awareness is profoundly tactile. Keltner was one of the co-authors of a study that looked at celebratory touches among NBA teams, among professional basketball teams. And who thought about this study? But, but they, they, they tracked the teams and they tracked the, the, the celebratory touches, the high fives, the hit fist bumps, the half hugs, the chest bumps, all those things. And they kind of charted that. And what they found is that there was a connection between the success of the team and the celebratory touches along the way, the way that they connected connected with each other, that they went on to conclude that from that study and others that that touch is incredibly powerful. It lowers stress, builds morale, and produces triumphs. Touch is incredibly powerful. And sometimes a challenge is as, as kids get to those teenage years, like kind of like a don't, you know, don't touch me and that sort of thing, they still need to be touched. Even if you just you can sneak a hand on a shoulder or, or, or whatever it might be, but there's still tremendous, tremendous, tremendous power in touch, right? So much so that many of you in your workplaces, they kind of have structures and rules about appropriate and inappropriate touch. Why? Because touch, a hug, is very, very powerful. 
And you may even intend it very innocently, but because of the power of touch, because of the power of a hug, it may be perceived or interpreted in an entirely different way, right? And so we have, we have HR departments who sweat the details over what is and isn't appropriate and, and all the boundaries that we kind of have to try to create in the workplace so there's not, not a misunderstanding there because hug, touch is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And if your home is going to be a shelter from storm, it's going to be a place where touch, loving touch is consistently communicated. But also it's a place of help. Help. Where do I go to get the help I need? Where do I go to get the guidance I need? Where, where do I go where there's people that know things I don't know, can do things better than I can do? Where do I get help just to make life work? And we all need that. And God's front lines of that is the family, a place of help and a place of hope, a place of hope. That, that, that it's a place where, where I, I understand, I, I, can, I can be encouraged. You know, we all get beat up. We all get knocked around. We all kind of get, get kind of the wind taken out of our sails. We all can lose hope along the way. The home, the home should be on the front lines of hope restoration of just a reminder, God's not finished with you yet. Uh, You're going to learn from this. We're going to get through this together. This isn't the end of it. Uh, Let's pull together this restoration of hope along the way that's part of that shelter. Maybe just one way to say it is the home should be a place where you give more strokes than pokes, right? (laughs) We all get poked a lot in the world, right? All we need are some strokes, some some help, some hope restoration, some hugs, somebody who will really hear and, and listen to me along the way. All of that is part of what it means for my home and your home to function as a shelter from the storms. There's a second thing that I think God had in mind when he designed the family, and that is a learning center for how to live life. A learning center on how do you actually live this thing called life. And so fathers are encouraged in the New Testament. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that there are some things that need to be poured into the lives of a child that needs to be kind of this learning center for how do you do this thing called life. And Jesus himself, I mean, he, he developed, he grew. The scripture said he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Isn't it interesting? Have you ever thought about it? Isn't it interesting? God became flesh and dwelt among us, but God in his providence didn't say, go kind of hang out in a cave for 30 years, and when it's time for you to make your appearance, come to town. Or he didn't have Jesus to like appear as this full-grown man. He came as an infant. And where did God put him to develop, to grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man? He put him in a family. He put him in a family. Not a perfect family, but a family. Because a family is not only a shelter from storms, but it's a learning center for how to live life. 
And again, we could perhaps make a, a long, long list of things that we learn from our family, but let's just, let's just touch on a few. One of the first things we learn from a family is about relationships. We learn how to relate to each other first and foremost from our family. And some of you had wonderful models of that, right? And you are blessed. Some of you, maybe you say, you know, I've had to overcome some stuff that I kind of saw in my family that, that now I realize wasn't the, the healthiest way to relate along the way. And so you have to kind of work through some hurdles. We learn about relationships on the front lines in our family. And so I have, I have a little grandson now, about two and a half years old. And so we're, we're having those things right now. You say, okay, how do you ask for that nicely? Please. What do you say after somebody does something nice for you? Thank you. Okay. No, we don't hit people in the face. That's not a good thing, right? I mean, we're yeah, having all of these kind of basic instructions for how do you live life? How do you relate to people? And the family was the front lines, God's front line on how to enter into healthy relationships. So we learn about relationships, but we also learn skills. I mean, skills for living, from how to eat, to clean, to do laundry, to uh, on and on the list goes, drive a car, how to make this phone call, or uh, take care of your money, or on and on and on. Life skills, all of those get honed and developed in this learning center called the family. Relationships, skills, and character. Character gets formed in the family. Obviously, God uses a lot of other things, not just the family, but one of the central things that God uses to shape a character is a family, is a family. And we have to bring intentionality to that along the way. Let me, let me, just, let me just go ahead and intervene right here. I mentioned that New York Times article. It was a New York Times article two years ago now called Parents Wired to Distraction. And it was kind of jumping off an a, a article that had been published in the journal Pediatrics. And a team of researchers, what they, they kind of observed some things. And they said, let's, let's hone in on this. And so they started going to restaurants intentionally to watch families interact. And, and they suspicioned what they were going to find, but they were kind of shocked to the extent of their findings. Here's what what they found is that parents were interacting more and more with their mobile devices than they were with their children. Here's the summary of their conclusions. The researchers said that the dominant theme was what they called the degree of absorption in devices that the caregivers exhibited. For a majority of the parents, the study found their primary engagement was with the device rather than the child. The researchers also noted that highly absorbed caregivers often responded harshly to child misbehavior. Uh, One of the the folks in that study, Catherine Steiner Adair, uh, interviewed thousands, thousands of children and parents about the role of screens in their children's lives and in their lives. She concluded that our kids are well aware of the media absorption. She said, children of all ages, 2, 15, 18, 22, use the same phrases to talk about how hard it is for them to get their parents' attention when they need it. They used words like sad, angry, mad, and frustrated. 
They were complaining that their parents were focused on screens. She continued, like a child's chorus of all ages talking about this new sibling rivalry, only it's not a new member of the family, it's a new screen. It's a device. Now, I don't know about you, but I've seen that. I've seen that in restaurants. And I know it's hard. It's hard. And maybe some of you are thinking, hey, it's not me as the parent. It's the kid. The kid's always on the thing, right? Here's my encouragement. Here's my encouragement. Put those suckers down, right? I mean, collect them all or whatever you have to do. I, I get it. And, and I, know, I know sometimes like you're on call from work and you've got to be able to respond. That I, I understand that. I understand that. But can I just encourage you? That wonderful kitty cat video is still going to be there 45 minutes later. It will. It really will. You know, I, I, I experience this, you know, if you're, you're sitting down with somebody and you're having a conversation, it's like every text that comes across their phone is more important than you. Are you kidding me? Then get up and leave. Get up and leave and go spend time texting. But be with who you're with, for goodness sakes. Be with who you're with. And, and I know it's easy sometimes, even, even as parenting, it's easy. Get that kid in front of a screen and they will be quiet. <laughs> but you also won't connect. And you'll miss out on being able to pour into their character to impart life skills and to teach them how to have a relationship with a real person, not just a virtual one. And, and I'm not against devices. I'm not. I've got them in my pocket right now. I was emailing, even this morning, I had in the lobby, a couple of pastoral care situations. It just came away and shot those emails out. I, you know, I'm thankful for those and the things they can do, but I'm just saying be careful. Be careful that they don't overtake what God wants to do in your family. Relationships, skills, character, and values. Values. And since I'm on my soapbox preaching, let me just give you one more here, okay? It, it is the most ridiculous statement I hear, and, and sometimes, sadly, I hear it even from, from church-going folks. And the statement goes something like this. Well, you know, I really don't want to impose my values. I really don't want to impose my beliefs. I think you just kind of ought to give a lot of options. And, and when they're older, they can kind of make up their mind about such things. Are you kidding me? If you don't have a strategy, if you're not trying to be intentional about imparting your values, I guarantee you almost everybody else in the world is. Almost every advertiser is already honed in on every member of your family imparting values. Uh, the music they listen to, the things that they, they see, other people who are, are speaking into their life. Almost everybody else in the world is very aggressive about communicating and seeking to instill or impose values on your family and your child and don't you be shy about that don't you be shy about that say this is who we are this is what we value this is what we're going to do and even it may even be at times that'll put you at odds even with some other kind of church families but to say this is what matters to us this is what we feel matters under God and we're going to say no to this and we're going to say yes to this absolutely be intentional don't fall into that trap of I'll just kind of kind of just go along and when they're 18 or something they'll be able to choose their own values by that time you've lost the war 
because everybody else has already been imposing and instilling values in them every step of the way. Be intentional. And when we talk about values and we talk about character, skills, or relationships, all for it's true. Values are more caught than they are taught. It's not just about great talk, Dad. It's about a great walk. And we all do that imperfectly for sure. But the life that you live in community with those of your family, that will be what you communicate. That will be the most powerful life lessons that you'll pass along. Now, I know, I know maybe some of you kind of, that was heavy, so let me give you the third one. Maybe this will, this will help give some balance to it. I think biblically, the family is also a place to play. It's a place to play. It should be a place that we, we have some fun. Ecclesiastes says, enjoy life. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Said another way, don't just endure each other, but enjoy each other. I know life is hard. I know it's serious. I know we get in the grind. I know sometimes the days turn into weeks, months, and years, and you look up and you feel like you've just been grinding away. But what I'm just going to encourage you is take some time. Take some time in the midst of it to say, let's make sure that we enjoy each other too. Yes, yes, you have a stirring lecture and, and, and maybe your family needs to hear that, but they also need to hear your laughter. They also need to hear your laughter. And sometimes we can get so busy and so focused and, and so intense, even if it's intense about the right things, that, that sometimes we just, we forget to have fun. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Don't just endure each other. Enjoy each other. And maybe you just have to protect some time or carve out time. But have some of those moments. But when I'm saying this, this isn't just about like a multi-thousand dollar trip. That's great. Enjoy those if the Lord allows. But there's just lots of little moments along the way. When I think about this, I, I remember one time. We were sitting around eating, eating an evening meal there in the, the kitchen area, and, and the kids were kind of going back and forth at it, you know, as kids do, you know, well, at least in our house, not in any of yours. But, you know, they, they kind of went back and forth. I don't even know what the topic was that night, you know. Somebody smelled or something, and, you know, and then there was accusations of uh, you have a fungus and, you know, this sort of thing. So, so there was accusations of a fungus among us, all right? That's, that was kind of the, uh, the gist of it there. And so at that moment, you know, Dad, it's kind of like, okay, what are you doing this? Well, sometimes you power up and you say, you know, be quiet. We're going to enjoy this meal together, you know. Uh, or sometimes you say, hey, a corny dad joke would be good here, okay? And so on that particular evening, since the subject was fungus, I thought, oh, a corny dad joke. And so I said, hey, you know what the girl fungus said to the boy fungus? And, of course, they, oh, dad, oh, this is going to be so lame, you know. Yeah, the girl fungus said to the boy fungus, are you a fun guy? (laughs) Said they didn't laugh very much either. (laughs) Okay, corny joke, corny joke, but great question. Great question. Yes, you're the leader. Yes, you're the parent. Yes, you got a heavy load. Yes, life is fast. Yes, the pressures are real. But are you a fun guy? I mean, there's value in your model for sure. There's truth in your lectures. 
but we'd like to have a little fun along the way. Don't just endure each other. Enjoy each other. I think a family should be a place to play. And fourthly, it should be a launch pad for ministry. A launch pad for ministry. When we talk about unleashing a movement of Christ-centered, spirit-empowered world changers, the beginning point for that is actually the home. A model of that's 1 Corinthians. Paul's writing, now I urge you brothers, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia. And they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Here are these folks that they came to know Christ, and out of their, their Christ centeredness, they devoted themselves to ministry. They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And that's part of what, what a, a home should be this launch pad for ministry where, where serving God and serving others is modeled and perhaps even done together as a family as is appropriate along the way. And then we, we launch out and we, we send forth these, these folks from our home, whatever age and stage that it becomes this launch pad for ministry. Perhaps even our physical house becomes a place of hospitality, a place of ministry along the way. That it becomes this launch pad for ministry. Uh, Hear me on this. The greatest gift you can give a friend, the greatest gift you could give a spouse, the greatest gift a parent could give another parent, or give a parent or give a child is a godly parent is to be a Christ-centered man, a Christ-centered woman. When you bring that to the relationship, it begins to inform everything we've been talking about. And it empowers your home to be a launch pad for ministry. I I gave Democrats some space on the front end, so I'm obligated to to give a Republican some time. So let me just uh, give you this example. Michael Reagan received many gifts from his father, President Ronald Reagan. But at the 40th president's sunset funeral, Michael described the greatest gift a child can receive. I'm just going to read you his words. I was so proud to have the Reagan name and to be Ronald Reagan's son. What a great honor. He gave me a lot of gifts as a child. He gave me a horse. He gave me a car. gave me a lot of things. But there's a gift he gave me that I think is wonderful for every father to give every son. Last Saturday... When he opened his eyes for the last time, that's when I realized the gift that he gave to me, that he was going to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He had, back in 1988, on a flight from Washington, D.C., told me about his love of God, his love of Christ as his Savior. I didn't know then what it all meant, but I certainly, certainly know now. I can't think of a better gift for a father to give a son. And I hope to honor my father by giving my son Cameron and my daughter Ashley that very same gift he gave to me. Knowing where he is at this very moment, this very day, that he's in heaven, I can only promise my father this, Dad, when I go, I will go to heaven too. And you and I and my sister Maureen, who went before us, we will dance with the heavenly host of angels before the presence of God. We will do it melanoma and Alzheimer's free. Thank you for letting me share my father. Ronald Wilson Reagan. And regardless of your politics, there is something there that perhaps the greatest legacy that you can leave is a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ and to lead the members of your family, regardless of what position you hold in that family right now, to influence and lead the members of your family 
to know, love, and follow Jesus Christ as well. And so that leads me to the last call, and it's going to be from the Old Testament book of Joshua. Familiar text to perhaps many of us. Joshua is kind of coming to the end of his leadership journey. He took over the reins from Moses. He's led the the people into the promised land and through battles and conquest, and now they're beginning to settle. And he knows that when they get settled in the land, there's going to be some new temptations or renewed temptations to begin to to drift from their God, to get busy with their abundance and their affluence and and forget their God along the way. And so he he challenges them with these words, kind of his his, part. Parting shot to them as they they begin kind of a new chapter in in their their history. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is the essence of a Christ-centered family. Regardless of what's happening in families all across the the North Atlantic that Patrick Moynihan and so many others have observed and uh, chronicled and, and noted, Regardless of what choices others may make, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Families pursuing that, I hope, will find an encouragement, a resource, and a partner in the context of the First Baptist family. Only you can decide whom you will serve but the challenge is yours choose this day whom you will serve may it be said as for me and my household we will serve the lord let's pray to him together please oh father how we thank you thank you that you are the god who designed the family designed it for our good and for your glory that you have a purpose and a plan that you are working out in, in every family here. And Father, I know that, that families don't always work uh, according to plan. Uh, they don't always go perfectly. But Father, that you work even in the imperfections. You work even in the messes sometimes. And so Father, I just, I pray today. I pray knowing that there are many, many, many of us in this room that can just give you thanks for the family that we grew up in. Not that it was perfect, uh, but that it, it, was used by you to shape our lives, to point us to you. And we praise you for that. And, uh, Lord, there, there are many here that, that family is working well right now. And, Lord, I just pray that you would just multiply that and you'd help them to build on and increase that. Father, there may be some that family's not working real well right now and there's, there's stress and there's tension and there's, there's just not what they want there's a lot of enduring but not a lot of enjoying and father i just pray that you might just just renew focus renew love lord there's some folks that find themselves in a family that they never imagined they never imagined that divorce would enter in they never imagined that 
a parent or a child would do this or do that. They never imagined they'd be facing the crisis that they're facing right now. Lord, would you just remind them that you're with them and that even in the midst of that whirlwind, even in the midst of that storm, you will be the anchor that holds. You will direct them of how to honor you and to experience your best in the midst of a family. Father, would you just help us today to choose anew and afresh that for us and our household, whether that's one person or a whole tribe, that for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. As you just take just a couple of moments.